Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. Now, if you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. Now, we've taken a few weeks off prior to this just to get ourselves in order given the current situation with COVID-19. We've had to relocate to our houses in respective parts of the world. Our special guest today is Dr. Simon Rowe. He's one of the world's leading experts when it comes to sports diplomacy, which is a topic that I think is gonna be significant given the amount of conflict and stakeholder interactions that are gonna have to take place at all levels of sport. And so I hope you find this as interesting and as useful as I did. And remember, if you like what we do, please do tell people about it. You can follow us on all the social channels. You can subscribe to our weekly email. And other than that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, wherever your new home office is, I hope you enjoy the show and you have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in. So welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. Our guest today is Dr. J. Simon Rolfe, who is a reader in Diplomatic and International Studies at the Centre of International Studies and Diplomacy, the CISD. I'm delighted to have Simon on because we've been uh, speaking now for a good couple of years to start off with. If you could give a bit of a flavour and a description of what sports diplomacy is and then we can come into why it's relevant for sports law and then talk about uh, recent developments as well but you know our ongoing discussion around why uh, diplomacy is, is such an important element to sport globally. Sport diplomacy what it means it's the explanatory framework and overlay to the network of evolving networks within the realms of both sport and diplomacy. It offers under the premise of three core characteristics of diplomacy, representation, negotiation and communication, a conceptual understanding of sport that provides the sort of navigation skills for practitioners to connect with and learn from different parts of the sport diplomacy ecosystem and helps provide critical reflection for policymakers and practitioners and scholars and lawyers to enhance the, their practice in these overlapping and conjoined spaces. In such, it's really about helping us in the world of sports law or diplomacy understand other people's perspectives. And, you know, sport is a great vector for that. And I think in these current climes will be an increasingly important one. I have to say I am um, heartened by the way that sport is being conceived of and reconceived there are challenges and there are you know missteps along the way but i think we can all be a bit more forgiving of some of the difficulties that individuals find themselves in and reconciling those um, different positions moving forward the processes and the forces at work that will lead to the you know post-covid environment the realignment those forces of realignment are something that are going to be very important for all of us to understand. And some of it will coalesce around things that are quite familiar, but some of it will coalesce around, um, you know, activities, behaviours, practices that, you know, are really quite different from what's gone before. The important point is to be, you know, to think about uh, how we engage with, 
you know, variety of stakeholders that are going to be part of that and make sure we don't exclude those who are, you know, maybe considered to be extraneous um, previously, but now have a far greater role. And I'm thinking here particularly about sort of the social and um, local parts of sport, which have been, you know, overlooked to a point in the commercial and the transnational. I'm sure we could talk about that a little more. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thanks for that introduction. And for those that you know, still uh, have the view, maybe, that why does sport diplomacy matter? Or here we go, there's someone else calling a phrase to um, be banded around the sports sector, and particularly in academia, uh, you know, sometimes that can be unhelpful when there's these phrases. When we went for a, a lovely lunch uh, a few months back, we talked about this, and, and the way you said it to me was that, as you sort of articulated then, there's just really just a helpful um, you know, framework in which people can just really get to grips with and have a better understanding of other people's position. And I found it particularly useful. So I came into sports law and sports sector in particular, came from a sports science background initially, then a legal background, and thinking, right, okay, if I understand the law, then we can understand the structures of good governance and everything in sport and all the business associated to it. Then I understood you needed the politics, sorry, the economics, and now I understand that you need the politics. And, it, and seeing and having been involved with some of the workshops you've run and others, how that dialogue is put together, the stakeholders that are brought together is also important. I've seen some very impressive um, outcomes from some of the things that, that I've had a privilege to be involved with. Um, in that, given that there's, you know, every day at the moment, having conversations from a legal perspective now about uh, insolvency and reconstruction, people worried about redundancies, not only just from a sports perspective, but the associated industries around it. It's quite uh, worrying times for, uh, in that yeah. regard for everyone, I think. Um, how do you see, or what advice would you give, given the experience that you have, if you are a government or if you're a governing body of sport at this moment in time, how would you advise people, or maybe you're a football club, you know, trying to go, or say the local sports organisation, yeah. how would you uh, recommend that people approach um, the dialogue that they're having? Well, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it almost, you know, in some senses, given the nature of our conversations, you're already thinking about those different stakeholders and the different dialogues I think we need to recognize that not everyone's in that position and that sometimes people don't know who to who to call in this sort of you know ghostbusters version of management is you know who's on the end of the phone who are you going to call and I think actually taking a moment at this point in time thinking about who your stakeholders are now for you know professional football clubs for example you know headline sponsors are things that make their business tick over but we're in a position to think about what is the nature of your business, putting, you know, 11 athletes out on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday evening or whenever it may be to, um, you know, play a football match creates a huge amount of commerce. But the other things that your sports organisation, your, you know, elite football club does, you know, the thousands of people who are employed on a match day who now, you know, in that situation aren't employed, the, you know, lo lots of development um, activity you know all of the scouting networks that people you know maybe one of a number of jobs but there's a considerable societal impact on you know your local environment now there's a 
transnational environment too, because, you know, if you're a big football club like Manchester United, then you've, you know, considered and cultivated and spent millions of pounds and dollars and euros on overseas markets. Um, and they are, you know, no less important in some regards, but the connections that you've made, the um, links that bring you together are differentiated. Now, the situation, um, the, you know, that much of this um, response has been on a national basis. Well, you know, national governments have a role to play. You know, no scholar of diplomacy is ever going to deny that. But there are other facets to their, you know, who else is part of this? You know, the IOC in recent days have been, you know, particularly, you know, challenged by the notion of pushing back the Olympics from Tokyo in 2020 to 2021. We saw the decision um, 10 days ago or so with UEFA putting Euro 2020 back to Euro 2021. You know, the knock-on effects of this are not just legal in terms of contracts that were signed to deliver something with a specific date on, but the transactions of diplomacy that mean that, you know, for example, with the Euros, that now bumps up against the Women's European Championships, which should be hosted in the United Kingdom, uh, in England, forgive me, um, in 2021. Now, projects and work had already been undertaken in that regard. There's, you know, a, a good degree of opportunity here. And I think this is really what we should perhaps focus on. So those forces of realignment, you know, is it possible to run a tournament, you know, in effect, on a more limited geographic scale? Is it possible to have um, tournaments which have a greater degree of sustainability? You know, I think that's part of a conversation that people were already absolutely have and were approaching. But perhaps this provides an impetus, COVID-19, to think about how we are really going to look at sustainable, um, not just sport mega events, but sustainable sport, you know, people not traveling up and down the country, you know, in their hundreds of thousands to visit, you know, a sporting fixture, but to be able to engage in that in a different and, you know, equally rewarding, but, you know, fundamentally different way. And I think some of those so the thing I was going to ask is that, that, that in a sort of utopian world where everyone's being kind and generous and at this moment in time, I think we're in a period where people are being very, uh, well, some people um, are being very sympathetic towards, yep. and I think particularly football clubs, as far as I'm seeing and other sports organisations globally, have been very conscious of putting their resources to, to help and assist, whether it's fundraising, whether it's you know, getting you know, help again, asking staff to help out, volunteers to help out, helping, you know, just domestically the NHS, Chelsea, obviously, with their, um, using their hotel for, for NHS staff. Um, I know other clubs yeah. have been doing, doing doing some fantastic stuff, various of make pledges to various community groups, etc. That's fantastic. And I applaud them for doing it. I think it's the absolutely the right thing to do. So, so at a time where they're under pressure. Now, obviously, football clubs have generally got uh, a greater ability, uh, particularly the big ones, I should say, the Premier League clubs have got the ability to deal with these difficult, what will be economic times, and potentially yeah, difficult economic times, whereas some of the smaller clubs don't really have that level of uh, bandwidth, let's say, or capital to be able to cope. And likewise, in rugby, we've seen, you know, what's, what's going on. The RFU are doing some great work to help help their members out. 
so when this when the uh, the dust settles, they're saying hopefully this passes in a few months. It seems like it's going to be much longer, but you know, God willing, it will it will uh, you know pass over as quickly as possible with as, as least amount of casualties as possible. How do these conversations restart, and how do people? What advice would you give to be the most effective to get the outcome that you want? But let's start off domestically for the time being. And then let's move to the issue of the Tokyo Games, where I think when you're dealing with uh, a culture like the Japanese culture, and they say either Swiss culture or British culture or European culture, um, they are uh, different. And therefore, how they approach uh, diplomacy and negotiation is, 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 is vastly different. So maybe you could, you know, in line of starting off with, you know, in the UK, what sort of top tips would you give to people here, or in fact, any other you know domestic place? What 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 the you sort of if you have a top ten tips of, of diplomacy, how do you approach it? How do you, what's the strategy you would deploy? Well, you know, just a small question then, Sean. Um, I think <laughs> yeah, always always very narrow questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the thing that strikes me most is that the processes that are in place have that will lead to the realignment and the, you know, effectively the restarting, things that we like to see as familiar, you know, fixture lists, whatever they, you know, for, you know, my son's under eights football team or for, you know, you know, major international competition. I think the forces that are there that still, uh, you know, have been there for millennia, you know, representation, communication and negotiation are things that whether you are, you know, an official ambassador on behalf of a nation state or, you know, any representative of a you know local football club or a national one you are having these conversations anyway you're part of that dialogue whether you've recognized it in yourself or others have recognized it in you I don't think you could underestimate the you know the sort of ambassadorial qualities that you're going to be exhibiting you know so if that's your you know providing leadership as a under eights coach on a Saturday morning if that's providing, you know, support to a communication network, you know, if that's using your YouTube channel to share information, you know, as a scholar, if that's teaching students and sending them out, as it were, into the world, we all have these um, opportunities to, you know, represent ourselves, our local community, the multiple different identities we have. And they, to me, are things that will become even more important. And I, I think that opportunities well, better, sorry, sorry am i wrong in this sorry to interrupt you is no, no, there no, a no. better way though so I, I agree with you on those points entirely and i think you know whether or not you know, people acknowledge it or not obviously you're right that you're you know you're representing something or someone or a group and everyone can have an impact however there is going to be a better way and we've seen it say for example in a legal context we see say for example collective bargaining uh, other negotiations that are done very well and very effectively and some others that are done uh, not very well right and there's certain people who are known for rubbing people up the wrong way and there's other people who are known for being incredibly uh, you know uh, effective in terms of getting the outcomes they want so in that regard what is what would say the best thing to do and what are the not so good things to do the things that you you might take for granted because you've been doing this for such a long time but you know, if you were going to say to someone, right, you, you're going to be sitting against someone who you may perceive as adversarial yeah. in this situation, like trying to fight for funding, fight for support, yeah. fight, you know, deal with your employees. 
what are the best best approaches would you say i think being prepared to listen even in adversarial uh, circumstances even when there's competition and again i'm going to hark back to some of the long-held tropes of diplomacy even when you're you know you still have to talk to your enemies and you know that's how problems and issues are resolved ultimately there is a good degree of um opportunity i think the best you know being prepared in your position understanding different points of negotiation understanding where you are prepared to you know compromise to a point these are all you know in some senses standard practices and, and things that you know colleagues would be familiar with but i think the I don't think were, sorry sorry just to interrupt you simon again I don't mean to do this. I think that for our audience and our listeners, I, I think some will be really familiar with it. I think others will not be, because okay. I mean, we have a global we have a global membership. Only twenty five percent comes from the UK, and so just to, just if you can just elaborate on that a little bit more, because you know again for 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 the the the, the more senior people who are listening, more experienced people, they'll go, oh yeah, this is pretty bog standard. In my experience in the sports sector, there is. You know, a bunch of people who work in the sector who are incredibly passionate about what they do, incredibly uh, driven, but there's a varying degrees of experience. And so I think if you could elaborate on it, it'd be really helpful. So I think in some in certain circumstances, the difficulties that you face in negotiating, you know, will always be there. But what one should do is think about the points of compromise that this situation has thrown up, the solidarity that different circumstances will offer in the future um, and by that I mean you know maybe there's an alliance now between a football club and a rugby club that would never have happened before because you know they were using the same supply network they were using the same um, sort of security staff they were you know going from one event to the next depending upon you know, sort of the fixture list is there a way to use that kind of resource more efficiently and more sensibly more sustainably can you offer you know the the training that's done for um, you know security staff or gate staff or catering staff at the football club to the same people at the cricket club or the um, rugby club. Can you do that in a tiered way so that it's not just the elite rugby club and the elite football club, but the local football club? How many of you know the the local football teams within a five mile radius of Old Trafford have ever had a training session? You know even at the old uh, you know, Manchester United training facilities. You know, some of this is about making good use of the resources we have. And it's not to wish to impose on Manchester United or any other particular yeah. club. It's just to say that actually utilising some of those resources and thinking about the way that in a post-COVID environment, we might not be able to, you know, revert back to having, you know, 25 football pitches next to each other all being played on at the same time you know, the car parking nightmare that that ensues. <laughs> but, you know, we've, we've been into those circumstances. So I think thinking about that on a sort of practical level, and I'd really emphasise from the whole sort of sport diplomacy point of view, it's about the practice. It's about making those links that you wouldn't have done otherwise, having conversations you wouldn't have done otherwise. And therefore, you know, picking up and being aware of that. It's so easy to be siloed in our thinking, both in academia and scholarship Absolutely, and in yeah. law. So you're not making the connections. You know, how many other lawyers do I know than usual in a fashion? Not that many. But I think this is an example of where sport particularly can make a connection. So people who actually are, you know, 
the PE teacher community, you know, may, you know, invested in the teaching community within schools. Well, that's one set of environments. Who do we know is the, you know, head of sport at your local county council? You know, who is that? You know, how does that uh you know, so, so, in this, so, so, a piece of advice then would be is one. Obviously, it sounds to me think out of the box, think out the traditional norm, think about how yeah. people, even at this difficult time, you know, going forward, how they can be more resourceful. But secondly, start some conversations with people who um, they otherwise yeah. wouldn't reappraise have the your network. Reappraise yeah. your network. You know, who are the stakeholders? You know, five people who you wouldn't have spoken to before this. You know, make the effort to speak to them. Yeah. you know both the individual and the I think that's sorry that was, as I say I think that's good practice anyway and I think it's really been really yeah. interesting because I've been having some great conversations with people and normally I, I love to see people in person but obviously because of the restrictions we can't um yeah it's been fantastic to catch up with a whole bunch of different people right because you've just got a little bit more time because you're not commuting here there and everywhere um yeah and I think that's a really important you know, just be prepared to have those conversations you wouldn't have normally, but also think about who, you know, what are the other networks you're part of? So, you know, much of the, you know, heartening solidarity local communities that we're part, you know, that are groups that have come up, you know, whether that's delivering food to your, you know, elderly neighbour or just checking in on people, you know, how else can they be part of that conversation? Um, you know, what, how are those networks, you know, maybe maybe those people were part of you know a, a football club or a cricket club or uh, mm. you know had some contribution of yesteryear you know maybe they served in the armed forces and were part of the sports you know environment and that yeah. the armed forces is a good example you know sport has always been an important part of particularly That's british uh, forces experiences you know and it was used for you know particular purposes of course but you know there are other parts of that in you know, the community um, and social dimension and the local you know bringing you know the, the army in, in many regards is a good example of this you know you've got people from all over the country yes there were geographic concentrations obviously yeah. but you know playing in the same team literally and those sporting networks filtering out of their military uniforms into other um you know demonstrably um sporting environments so i think that you know there's always someone uh, you know a, a conversation to be had in that regard and so in that sense on a very local level that's you know diplomacy maybe that's within your village your street your you know town but these things extrapolate both sort of upwards and outwards and yeah. so you know the the idea of where else those things are replicable well what are the other parts of the conversation um elsewhere both you know nationally and then internationally and you know can be very you know far afield you don't have to be doing you know great um uh, you know elite sport to be having a connection with a you know a club halfway around the world um so i think it's important to get them you know to be part of that sort of thinking and that's you know one dimension of, of sport diplomacy obviously within its you know more um formal status you've got you know states and international sporting federations national governing bodies who have you know particular interests but about making those connections i think that they wouldn't have done normally and that's really something that's um you know important to to think about um well, particularly that given can... that sport has this social license rather than yeah, the, yeah the, it does the, and if it has this social license then you know, what better way to uh, um validate the fact that you've been given here essentially um 
uh, by actually uh, you know contributing more and, and, and thinking differently and really ensuring that's in your DNA I think as you were saying at the start of the podcast from a from moving on um from a from an international perspective with uh you know uh, the Tokyo games how do you think that you know what would be your commentary on on how this has all played out because uh, as with most uh, organizations most businesses there's this um almost standoff in terms of people were not wanting to pull the trigger as such in terms yep. of being the first person to make the move for, for a whole bunch of different reasons um how did you see um uh, the gains being postponed how did you see that all manifest itself from a diplomatic perspective well i don't think we should underestimate the diplomacy at work here um the ioc is, is you know is a is a case study of diplomatic activity you know and it has been throughout its you know modern existence i think you've got to recognize the variety of different stakeholders the uh, and that's not just the executive you know ioc members but all of the different commercial organizations that have you know strong sway but also you know what sports you know there's a strong element within the ioc of you know sport making a contribution to society and you know postponing the centerpiece the summer olympic games is not something that would ever be done lightly and it's not to say that other sports organizations again whether it's uefa or you know your local um you know sports team school teams have been you know take anything less likely but the ioc really have you know a challenge in being able to coordinate their um uh, decision making in that regard i'd almost give them some credit in the sense that it's, it's almost because it's a federalized you know organization to a point you know contrast that with you know fifa's previous existence under um, blatter you know it's not that thomas back woke up one morning and decided to change his mind um mm -hmm. it's that he had to go through you know a negotiated process within those uh, ioc members to arrive at that conclusion i don't think he would have found very much as it were outright opposition but there would have been a number of considerations at, at play you know what does this say about the IOC moving forward? What does it say about any sporting organisation? But the IOC particularly, given it has such an important global governance role, both it's sort of it's moral, it's ethical, it has, you know, a huge amount of influence and sway on those national Olympic committees. And then those national Olympic committees in influencing sports, even ones that don't, you know, don't feature in yeah. the Olympic Games. But nonetheless, there is an important, you know, leadership quality you know, there has been criticism uh, that it took too long to make the decision. I think the, you know, the sort of moral contract rather than perhaps the legal contract between the IOC and the host nation is something that will be, you know, could be reappraised. You know, the Japanese uh, leadership, the Prime Minister Abe, you know, has made a great degree of investment, not just in um huge monetary terms you know but in terms of what japan you know what these olympic games are going to mean for japan particularly in the post uh fukushima post uh, tsunami environment you know i think they've done a pretty good job up to this point of being sensitive to the um you know challenges of rebuilding a nation at the point at which you know the economic situation has been you know temperamental at best i think they've therefore you know, what does it say about the national identity of um, Japan to 
have you know accepted being in a position where they weren't able to deliver something that they'd pledged to deliver and i don't think you should underestimate that as a consideration it's not going to be able to be trumped as it were by the um you know gravity of uh, covid-19 but to recognize that it's more than something that's you know it 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 poses a different set of challenges i think if you're hosting the olympic games the summer olympic games I feel deeply sorry for them, uh, uh, as I do for all the athletes, everyone involved, to be honest with you, um, just because, of, you, you know, the Olympics is, uh, and Paralympics are expensive events to run at the yeah. best of times, right? And it's questionable whether or not nation states get their return on investment, uh, particularly yeah. in the short term, let alone the long term. And then given this situation, I just think it's a, yeah, an incredibly difficult time for them. Um in terms of the how uh, diplomacy fits with law, what since you've since our conversations, our conversations happen because of a mutual uh, friend, uh, Tikea, at yeah. um, Canterbury Christchurch, um, and and yourself were hosting an event on uh, sport for development and uh, the UN Sustainability Development Goals, uh, and I was invited uh, to attend, and I hadn't really given it much thought before that. Um, and then we started a dialogue because I felt that, and, and my research proved the fact that in a sports law environment, the UN Sustainability Development Goals wasn't really widely discussed. And you were talking about your groups and networks. I suddenly realised then the network that I had was very much on the on the too heavily weighted at this, to a certain degree on the legal community. I wasn't speaking to some of the people in the sport for development or development for sport um, type roles. Obviously, then we started a discussion and. And hence this podcast and then you started to get more interested in the, in the legal aspects how uh, and given that you've got this uh, I think you're a part of the project with Richard Parrish and uh, on, on, from the European Commission on, on, on sports diplomacy the, the Erasmus is it funded is it Erasmus funded yeah yeah Erasmus yeah, project yeah, yeah. Really Erasmus. and so um, maybe you can talk about that and then talk about how your uh, perceptions maybe changed of lawyers <laughs> or maybe it hasn't um, well, the good news is I didn't have a lot of uh, reason to have any uh, connection with lawyers, so I haven't had to you know, reconstruct my, um, my, my preconceptions um, to any great extent. Um, I think it's an interesting starting place. What, one of the most rewarding features of the, you know, sort of building out this field of sport diplomacy has been to recognise that um, there are a number of, you know, other realms that need to be part of the conversation that help frame the, the the discussion. So the legal dimension is one, you know, you know, and I give good credit to you here, John, largely through, uh, you know, my knowing about your work has, is something that provides a, you know, some points of connection, but also some, you know, some buttressing, some, you know, the parameters of what sport diplomacy entails in the same way that, you know, colleagues in the academic realm who've worked within sport and sociology or sport and politics have, you know, their own conceptual and, you know, heritage that means that sport diplomacy exists, you know, both with and, you know, uh, in relation to these other to other realms. So when you're talking about the sport for development community, the sport legal community, these are all parts of the, the, the sort of architecture and you know, sport diplomacy has emerged, you know, to a part in my own work, but some others as well, Stuart Murray particularly. That means there is a, you know, identifiable 
field of study here, and not just for its own pract- uh, you know, sake, but because it has a practical dimension. And I think what I've taken from the my understanding of sport law is is far less the sort of contractual dimension, which you know sometimes we we think about as you know the multi million dollar you know media contract for yeah. Premier League rights or something like that. And clearly, you know, there's a contract there, but you know, and again, I want just to speak out of turn, but you know, a contract's a contract in some sense. <laughs> it's much more the the legal. Um, sort of governance that comes with that it's the acceptance of expertise and relevant expertise and understanding where you know a legal opinion is going to buttress your diplomatic argument so understanding that it's not just about the um sort of the legal construct particularly within a nation because that varies from nation to nation but understanding the different sense of governance and the ethical practices that you know underpin you know a contract that is you know being signed by parties perhaps across different you know um, national boundaries but i think there's also something to take from you know my appreciation of sports law that applies even when contracts aren't in place there are implications for this at much more much lower levels and particularly without any financial repercussions but i see you know good sports law practice being played out you know in some of the transactions around safeguarding and you know uh, issues like that which i've seen both in a sort of parliamentary case um but also at a, at a much more local level you know uh, i've been uh, undertaking some coaching qualifications myself and i can sort of read into them the you know legal dimensions of this which i, I think are you know a considerable boon they you know and again Sports law is not isolated in itself, you know, it no, fits absolutely. into a legal construct. And, and I think that's very much evident to me. That, so sports law provides a means for my understanding of sports diplomacy to uh, fit into the broader legal framework of this country, of the European Union, as we're still in it, and, you know, the broader sort of concept of international law, you know, which is understood as that consensual, um, you know, feature. There's no well you know international law is a separate conversation but <laughs> at least in some sense it has you know little binding qualification but it has a huge amount of influence yeah. and i think that's where you can translate that very directly both into diplomatic practice and into the sporting realm which is why sport and diplomacy comes together as an informed by you know solid sports law practice well also the uh, you know for example a conversation with some of our, our mutual friends there is also this feeling that, you know, often from a sports law perspective, that lawyers have been dealt with with um, or have been dealing once the policy has been developed, right? Once the discussions there, sometimes, uh, I'll say all too often, the lawyers are being brought in once the decision's been made. They're saying, right, how can you implement this or how can you do that? And then actually haven't been part of an earlier discussion, which means that um, whether it's on a contractual point, you can flag up a potential um uh, risky provision in the contract or something that could be worded better or something that's, that's socially prohibited or from a, from a, a practice case or implications for a safeguarding as an example risk management that they could be brought in the conversation much much earlier would you say that that's something that you you you, you agree that that's the sort of a shared view from some of the people we've been speaking to that that they would like the lawyers to be involved um not from a perspective of um 
let's say implementation, but from an advisory point of view. And then that's that point where you were saying about people having, um, you know, understanding someone's position better is going to be advantageous if you're trying to be better at uh, diplomacy. I think there's, you know, the understanding where to get good advice from and listening to people who have got a, a particular you know, skill set and experience is something that we should all be doing. I think, you know, the conversations that those who, as it were, self-identify as sport lawyers can offer is something that should be almost in the sort of first, you know, stages of any sort of conversation. You know, I would like to see, you know, local football clubs almost have, you know, a, um, you know, access to some legal advice. You know, mm. I'd like to see, you know, the school sports sector have a greater understanding of not just the sort of, you know, harder side and, you know, frankly, some of the unpleasant things that, you know, the law needs to deal with, but some of the advisory and thought processes that, you know, lawyers have to go through, I think are really useful things for people in the sporting world. Preparation, understanding, you know, as many as it's possible of the ramifications of your decision before you take them. These are good things that, you know, yeah. as I understand it, and you know, yeah, my, my, my one course in law that I took, <laughs> you know, lawyers have to do. So it's a, it's a valuable function of what we need to see as the output to, you know, any process. And I think that sport for a long time hasn't sought advice from outside sport. And I think, you know, the, those sports lawyers who have, you know, tried to keep a, you know, maybe a foot in, in, in each camp is something that we can really make a difference with. So I think there's a great degree of sense in, in you know, seeking to have sports lawyers as part of the conversation elsewhere, other than, you know, where they might normally exist. But I think that requires some, you know, crucial diplomacy to make sure it happens, you know, sensitively and without, you know, necessarily... Um, you know, huge cost because many of these sports organisations are not going to be able to afford high fee levels, and you know, there's there's a, a social function which I think you know all professions can offer, and I think the opportunity to have impact and the monitoring and evaluation of that in sport is something that the legal profession could offer, you know, to very good effect. I, 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 well, of course, I would agree. <laughs> More work for lawyers. Great. I'd get yeah, totally. Um, no, but joking aside, oh, absolutely. Oh, bono. You're, you're going to be very popular in the sports or community now. You'll be quoted <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, joking aside, I agree with you, though. I think that definitely at the different levels, there's there's opportunity there. And, and the knowledge sharing part is something, obviously, that's in the you know, DNA of what we do. So uh, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, well, I guess my 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 final point is what do you think that the discussions are going to be like going forward obviously we talked about what you you would like to happen what do you think um you know like both ongoing with covid at the moment and then post-covid environment what do you see you know happening particularly given that sport is we haven't really touched on though but sport from a government perspective is often about um uh, education healthcare societal impact around all these these other issues other than the, the sport is almost 
not quite secondary, but the competitive element of sport is, is not really the, the main thing, the physical activity and education and social elements are seem to be awaited on much greater by, by governments. So how do you see all that sort of being impacted and influencing the government's perspective as much as, um, or governments, I should say, perspective as much as um, in these trying times? I think there will be, you know, some unfortunate um, tensions arise. You know, the you know, rescheduling events is going to be difficult. It's going to require a lot of common sense to get to that point where, you know, people have um, you know, a common set of fixtures, you know, guidance, etc. You know, making the most of the resources we have whenever you know fixtures are going to you know recommence, and whether that, and I think that's whether that's at a local level you know of a you know my son's team again or you know international competition there's going to need to be some you know careful thinking i think we can do that you know we arrange fixture lists all the time yeah, yeah. and yeah exactly you can do that but i think there's a you know i would take advantage of the the solidarity in that there will be some difficult competition uh, sorry scenarios some people will lose significant amounts of money and i don't just mean individuals i mean you know organizations I think we should be, you know, if it's recommending to government, I think there should be a sort of solidarity um, payment of some function, you know, collectively amongst sport, for sport. I think we can um, look to, you know, clubs who are going to find it particularly difficult to carry on, again, all levels, whether you're from the, you know, elite sport or, you know, local participatory sport. But I think the, perhaps the greatest, you know, thing that I see moving forward is recognizing the social and community dimensions of sport um, in a way that is not just a million miles away from the commercial and um, you know high profile uh, level of sport I think the connections between you know those you know mega bucks institutions sorry, sorry, and the local is something that's going to come from this because I think if you're a consumer of the record at this point We'd also want to see, you know, local sport. There'd be, a, you know, if, if there was a, if we could meet, I would come and watch, you know, your kids play football now because I need to see some football. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think if we, you know, that is something that we could, you know, that people will want to see. So I think there's an opportunity for enhancing the community dimension of sport, even if it means we can't simultaneously watch it all together in one stadium. But I think that's where there's real opportunity. And again, you know, diplomacy has a long track record of bringing people together without them being physically together. You know, so I think we have that opportunity in sport to have community experience, those shared memories that, you know, sport gives us and is one reason it has that social capital. But we will need to give some serious thought to how we do that moving forward. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. But remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on all the social platforms. Of course, if you're sitting at home and you'd like to improve your knowledge base, you can become a subscriber of Law in Sport, get access to our 2,000 peer-reviewed articles, access our for free our ongoing webinar series, which will be going on over the course of the year, and get access to the recording of all of the 
football law conference videos and our annual conference videos, which are I think there's about 30 hours of of content there that is really top quality content from world leading experts. So if you do want to upskill yourself over this period of time, then I thoroughly recommend, of course I would, uh, that you become a subscriber of Law in Sport and you check out all of our stuff. Other than that, thank you for tuning in. And remember, if you enjoyed the show, please do tell people about it. It really does make a huge difference to us. So thanks so much for tuning in.